On this episode of the Penultimate Podcast, we dive into a conversation with UK's Ben Simons, a two-time Olympic bobsled athlete, high-level former decathlete, and stud strength coach. We learn about Ben's story and how he ended up where he's at today. We also get to have a discussion on the concepts and aspects behind general physical preparation and more sport-specific elements and where athletes really need to be investing the mass majority of their time to get the most bang for their buck. Some of these things may surprise you. Don't go anywhere. This was an amazing podcast, and you have so much to learn from this exceptionally talented individual. The penultimate podcast is powered by Project Pure Athlete. Visit projectpureathlete.com and check out the complete line of PPA training and technique products. All products are created by the Jump Guy and have been used and endorsed by coaches and athletes worldwide. Jump higher, train smarter. You are now listening to the penultimate podcast with the jump guy, Tyler Ray, powered by Project Pure Athlete. Jump higher, train smarter. All right, so we are here with Ben Simons, not Simmons, like the basketball player. We got that taken care of. This has been a long time coming, man. I'm super excited to be able to have you on this podcast. You've been a, an advocate for PPA for a long time, but more importantly, I've been keeping my eye on you and and what you're doing on your end overseas. And I just want to say thank you for taking your time to be here with me today, man. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, yeah, it's been a I've been following you for a while and yeah, there's been a lot of back and forth over social media. So it's nice to finally do this kind of e-meeting through a screen and get to chat a bit. Absolutely. So for those that are listening right now, or if you're watching our beautiful faces over YouTube uh, and you don't know who Ben is, I'm going to give you uh, the spotlight, Ben. I'm going to, I'm going to give you some time here to kind of, kind of walk us through like a Coles notes version of, of how you came up um, some of the, the sports you were involved in and what you're doing mm-hmm. now. Yeah. Okay. So pretty hyperactive kids. Easiest way for my parents to wear me out was to, throw me into whatever sport was available at the time. Um, I think that's the case for a lot of people that end up being sports people. It's a way to burn off energy, right? So I was just doing every sport that I could do. And in growing up in England, it's always football first and foremost. So it was football first. I played a lot of rugby. Um, I played, I did track and field quite early actually, which I was lucky with because there was a local, we call it athletics over here. There's a local athletics club, which, they start kids at about seven, eight years old and they do what we call sports hall athletics. So it's indoors, you know, we haven't got great winters just like you're used to over there. So I went through that kind of background with, with infant sports, I would say. And then it became quite apparent that I was much better at speed and power. So sprints and long jump were the main things I was good at as a, I would say, teenager. But at that point, I was playing a lot of rugby as well. And um, I kind of had to make a decision, I think, before I went to to university. So I was, I was off to university to study sports science. I kind of had to make the decision there which sport I wanted to pursue because at that point, I was doing decathlon, which, as you know, is incredibly demanding training-wise. It's not and easiest. that along with rugby, yeah, those two sports, they're just not going to work together training-wise. So at that point, 
yeah, I chose to pursue athletics and specifically decathlon at that point. But I was very lucky in that quite randomly, I found out that a track and field coach lived within the same area as, as me growing up. And I'm in quite a small rural area. And it turns out he'd, I think, coached athletes at five different Olympics. He was predominantly high jump and basically had a facility in his back garden. So there had been on a local Air Force base, an indoor arena where they would do most of the championships in the kind of early 90s. And they ripped all of the Mondo track surface out of that indoor arena and he got it and laid it in his back garden. Oh, wow. So it was a back garden training venue, a garage gym. And then obviously this, this wizened coach who had been coaching for decades and decades and decades. So he was my coach then and kind of has acted as a mentor ever since that point. Obviously with him being high jump, it, it was very um, jump centric, every, all the training that we were doing. And at that point it was still decathlon that I was – I was pursuing then a lot of injuries came which I think is is the case for a lot of athletes and especially Dick athletes a lot of them were just me um, being a young man and doing silly things playing five-a-side football jumping off cliffs on my bike a lot of them were not sports related injuries which is unfortunate people are like oh well were you doing too much was it overuse injuries but a lot of it was just doing silly things outside of the sporting environment. So that made jumping actually horizontal jumping um, because at that point I thought, well, decathlon might be out the window here. So you've got all of those events to do on ankles at this point, which I'd had to have a couple of operations on. So horizontal jumps were what I tried to pursue. Ankles again, wouldn't say that. So then it whittled down to sprint. So I was basically, I was kind of at the point where I was left with, the most simple thing that I could do without getting right. hurt. I wasn't the most talented guy at, at top end. And I, I'm sure you see this a lot now with people who are very gifted in kind of speed, strength, or power may not have the top end gas or velocity that you would see in elite level track guys, but could blast a lot of people over 40 yards. Right. There seems to be a trend that I see. And I was lucky that I found a niche in, in bobsleigh. And it was a pretty random journey. I was at my university at this point training, um, studying at master's level. I was still training sprints, more recreationally at this point. But there was a poster on the notice board in the training center. It said, could you push your country at the next Olympics? Four guys jumping into a sled. Yeah. And it said, like, open testing, 30 meter sprint, standing long jump, squat, bench press. I thought they're my favorite exercises. I'm going to go for that. And at that point I thought, do you know what? I'm, I knew a little bit about the sport. I was smaller than the athletes that were involved in it, but I thought that looks like a fun testing session. Lay down some numbers. Anyway, I laid down some pretty good numbers and went from there. And at that point it was like a, it was a process. It was like a knockout process. So you had to make it past the physical standards. Then we have, a dry land push track so it's a facility where we push a sled on wheels you might have seen it on my social media um it's almost like a glorified version of the sled they use in cool runnings when they're right, off down right. a hill in jamaica 
and you had to push a certain time on there and from that point yeah it was like a process where you get knocked out at every stage and before i knew it i was being pushed off the side of a mountain feeling like i was going off niagara falls in a trash can and yeah i think it was probably 18 months later i was at the winter olympics in in sochi and at that point was the only athlete from the that talent id process which the poster was part of mm-hmm. that had actually made it through to the game so it was quite an achievement but it was just such over a two-year 18-month period it was just a complete whirlwind but it was it just clicked i just found this niche that i was really good at i was always a great accelerator and good at um static jumps counter movement jumps anything that's a pure kind of power movement and pushing the sledge just just came to me very naturally it did mean i had to put a lot of weight on but i didn't mind that process you know it's a lot of fun pumping iron eating calories but um and i mean it's another discussion in itself uh, that's actually helped me in the last um, eight years since I started as far as my raw power measures go so yeah that was quite long-winded but it's uh, quite an up and down and all over the place journey in my sporting career absolutely I mean you've you've had a very um, like diverse story of sport and athletic I mean I think mm-hmm. you know we I think bonded initially over the track and field background um, you know myself also being someone that uh, participated in uh, multi-events decathlon and but and jumps and sprints and I think you know this whole community is is really just bonded by their their love for power sports in general so um, really need to be able to see someone that's made a transition into something like bobsleigh I know in Canada um, they used to source a lot of the Canadian athletics for um, bobsled athletes um, yeah, because yeah. of the fact that we had that that raw capacity for for power um, yeah that's such a, that's such a great story and at the highest level too I think a lot of people don't realize is like to, to make it to the Olympic games in any event or any sport is an absolute um, struggle and such a huge accomplishment. It must've made you feel um, so complete and whole on so many levels. Yeah. It, that experience and what it's, what it's done for me is, is re- really, it's hard to, it's hard to describe. You know, I, I dreamt of the Olympics from a young age, but I never ever, think believed that it, it was possible and um in fact this the school that i went to in the tiny village that we was in had a distant connection to the olympic games because when the movement was being um brought around in you know just over 100 years ago they actually visited that small village because there was a kind of remake of the ancient greek olympics there by a local right. doctor and so it's a bit of a long story but um Pierre de Coubertin, who started the new Olympic movement, modern Olympic movement, he came to the village to watch it. So this small little village was really proud of its Olympic roots. So for me growing up, I started at that athletics club. And, you know, my first memories of sport were Linford Christie winning the um, Barcelona Olympics in 100 meters. He's um, like, he's one of my favorite all-time sprinters. I love watching Linford Christie run and I, I still go back and watch old tape of him. Yeah, I think sprinting now misses that. I, I, I don't know if I think some sprinting purists miss the aggression of 
the old sprinters. Yes. And I, I think that's what I loved about Linford. You wouldn't step in front of Linford on the line when he was running, not nope. a chance. And um, yeah, since then I've met a lot of people that, and a lot of people in my sport that have been coached by Linford over the years. And um, he was actually randomly at one of our races in, uh, in Austria one year filming a TV program. Mm -hmm. So that was a really surreal experience for me. So yeah, the, um, the dream was there from a young age, but I never really believed I had no right to believe I could make it because I wasn't good enough. And I wasn't a bad long jumper and sprinter, you know, as kind of national. And I had a couple of international um, competitions, but never to, as you say, to make it to the Olympics is, is just the next level again. And even in bobsleigh where participation numbers are smaller, still the amount of slots to qualify for an Olympic Games and the criteria set by your nation is always going to be based at your your medal potential, your potential to do well at the Games. It's still it's, it's another step to make it to the Olympics. And our qualification um, experience going to Sochi, which is my first Games, was it was just it was literally like it was a roller coaster ride. <laughs> no pun intended there, but it was it was such a lengthy and stressful um experience right so yeah it was it, it's all been pretty crazy and that w w like i said with that happening in, in 18 months that's pretty crazy i've been training for at that point i've been training seriously for 10 years but for something else what it actually did was improve my chances of going in this this sport that i hadn't imagined before yes and because of where my talents lay it just improved my propensity to push things Absolutely. and uh, yeah hit the ground running but you, you can imagine yourself it's um being a former decathlete if you had had the chance to push a sled and this is often why decathletes make such good bobsledders because they're definitely at the strength end of the track and field spectrum right but they're quicker than a thrower, right? And they've got to obviously jump seven to eight meters running, you know, low 11s to low 10s even for some great decathletes. And you, you can imagine if you'd have got behind a sled in your prime, mm -hmm. that probably could have been something that you could really have anchored down with and been been talented at. And I think there's a lot of people, what we find in sled is there's some freak athletes that find a niche within our sport and uh yeah I, I just happened to find that so yeah i think i think about it uh i actually think about it still um i had an opportunity at one point to go and and undertake some bobsled and i i there was other life stuff that had come up at that at that time but yeah that'd be a i think an experience if anything else just to find out what it would be like to get behind a sled and uh just put some energy behind it because yeah you're, mm -hmm. you're absolutely right and i love how you you equated that to like the strength end of the of the track spectrum um because that's what it was it was like i i had this um ability to learn skill which which was, I think is as a decathlete, you have to have that like that motor control, like at a, at a very high level to be able to be, um, acquire new skills quickly and then be um, uh, very proficient at them as well. But it was like, I also, I was never fast enough to be a sprinter. I was never jumping far enough to be a long jumper or high enough to be a high jumper, but you do everything kind of within that like moderate to high end um, uh, 
window that really you know makes you ideal for that sport. So we appreciate you sharing that with uh, with our uh, community here. Now, where's your training at right now? What are, what keeps you motivated moving forward? Um, I you know if you haven't seen Ben's um, uh, Instagram and social media, this guy is constantly putting in work and still an absolute physical specimen. Um, you know, moving into your 30s and you're training at a, an incredibly high level still. What keeps that motivation going? What are you working at currently? So I can't imagine, I think a life with, I can't imagine a life without training because I've trained for so long. So it's just literally become part and parcel of my, my day-to-day life. And I think it's an interesting route for a track and field or bobsleigh athlete. For the most part, those sports are amateur until you are at the very top. It's very different in other sports. So if we think about spur over here or football over here as we call it basketball over with you guys uh, even down to canadian football those are very professional from a from a from a from even from the lower end so right. money is always a factor my drive to train is is not money orientated so i can't imagine training not training so basically, I, I, I train because I love it, actually, first and foremost. So when people talk about sacrifice with training, it takes so much sacrifice. Well, I actually love training. And if, I, if it wasn't going to get me to the Olympics or it wasn't going to get me paid, I'd still train. So a lot of it is it's, it's just an innate um, desire to train hard and push myself. People push themselves in other areas, and I love pushing myself and training. For me also, there's always a chance to to compete. I've become very proficient and, and good at the job that I do pushing a bobsleigh over the last eight years. And I'm now, after, um, after some reflection, going to push for my third Olympics, which will be 2022 in Beijing. Amazing, amazing. And this was, it's been an interesting decision because I didn't see myself carrying on after Pyeongchang, which was in 2018. And also our sport in the UK, we lost, we lost our funding at the time. So much like, I don't know the ins and outs of um, the Canadian Sport Fund for Olympic sports, but I think in the UK it's similar in that there's a centralized pot of money in the UK it comes from our um, national lottery that funds Olympic sports. But there's a lot of criteria, strict criteria you've got to hit. We hit that over a few years, maintain our funding. Our results at the Olympics weren't very good and that all went. So I had to think about obviously feeding myself at that point. Yeah. And that's where that's where I started really, and it's been a blessing really because that's where I started coaching. That's where I started getting my sports therapy qualifications looking beyond what just myself as an athlete and I've, I've really enjoyed it. I enjoy coaching as much as I enjoy competing. And I'm sure you found the same, the same passion very early since you were dunking and competing in, in decathlon. And there's, I've seen, I think there are certain athletes that love coaching or would be good coaches, but there are a lot of others that, that can't fill that role. Yeah, and right. I can imagine that's been your experience as well. Yeah, largely. I mean, I, I, I say still that I actually find 
more satisfaction, I think, overall as a coach than I did as an athlete. And I thought as an athlete that I would never find that intrinsic satisfaction at that level anywhere else, because it was like yourself, you're kind of, it's, there's this umbrella of, of passion that I think really, um, you know, surrounds everything that we do. And as athletes, you know, you know, that passion is so um, individualized. It's me. It's like, I want to be better. I want to improve. I want to be uh, taking those next steps and pushing myself. But as a, as a coach, there's still that individual element of like, I want to grow. I want to improve. I want to continue mastering my craft. But the, the residual of it is I'm helping athlete A, B, C, D, and E also feel the same thing. So it's like, it amplifies the amount of um, reward in, in a lot of ways for me, um, to work in this field. So, um, that it's actually a great segue. So you had mentioned that you, um, kind of work through, you have your master's, you work through a sports therapy degree. Um, you're like an exercise science major in, in general. Mm-hmm. What are you doing right now on the coaching scene? Um, where you're at, uh, to, to give back, like who, who are you working with currently or where do you find yourself spending the majority of your coaching energy? So obviously the online platform has blown up over the last few years and I started, I started off there. So I'd, I'd always given a lot of advice to athletes around me in whatever training center I was at. And that was just an open discussion between everybody. And it's probably where a lot of us learn most of our information actually in in the trenches so to speak but then it came from requests over instagram so i was posting uh videos of me doing box jumps and static jumps any anything powerful really and i just got started getting requests for for programs or you know what what you're doing and i'd I'd never allowed one coach to program me over the years. I was always very involved in my programming, which is something that a lot of athletes don't really do. They like to keep that responsibility somewhere else. But I didn't feel like I was being accountable enough with my knowledge if I didn't at least question some parts of my programming and drew influence from elsewhere. Because I was very lucky to have a number of good coaches and influences around me in the setup that we had at the time. Right. So I took influence from elsewhere. So I'd drawn up a very clear view of what I thought worked programming wise and what I saw work for the different individuals within the squads I worked in. So at that point I started actually writing the odd program for people just because they'd requested it. Then that became the request became too much essentially. You know, I'm not going to be spending hours. At that that point I was a funded athlete. I could have some spare time to consolidate my thoughts with some athletes who wanted a program that that worked for both of us. It got to the point where I just didn't have the time and to just to honor all of these requests that were coming in. So at that point it looked like a viable business and that literally fell in line with when I started losing my full-time athlete status. So my wage, so to speak, right from competing. So it started on online and then at that point I always knew that I wanted to take um, sports massage qualifications and get into sports therapy. So I was very lucky in that we can get the odd grant as well. When we come, there's a transition off the funding ladder in the UK where you can get some grants to further yourself and get some qualifications. So smart. It, it, and and it, it really is. And that helped me lots because they're, they're not cheap. 
so I did personal training. I did sports massage, and um, re- my, my most recent one was sports acupuncture as well. So at that point, I was just setting myself to up to ultimately be the best coach that I could be. But at the same time, it was a necessity because I needed to earn money. So I could, I could coach. I could do my sports massage, and that was enough to you know to keep me going while still keeping my foot in the door and training. Because I had a real, a real dilemma because I applied for a job in recruitment as well. And I would have had to move down to London and really just step into that nine to five life. Right. And that represents stability. But it didn't sit well with me, my passion. I'd, I'd put my heart and soul into physical preparation from probably 16 years old. And yeah, money wasn't enough to drag me away from that. So I thought, right, I need to really get as much knowledge as I can and enough qualifications to be able to go out and work with people. And the process has just been, it doesn't feel like work, especially especially one-to-one training. When you get a group of guys in a facility and you might have the vertex out and it's a max out vertical jump day and the energy's going on in there, I it's very similar to the process that I think you've, you've been through in that I always doubted whether I could get the same rewards from seeing other people do well physically. And it wasn't just myself because sport is a lot of people don't like to admit it, but it's incredibly selfish. Sport's an incredibly selfish area. It has to be, to be in a lot of ways. Yeah, it does. It does. And cause you, it's very hard to be successful if you don't think that way. But so that I, that I was worried that I wouldn't get the same, reward from coaching other people but i've had a very similar kind of epiphany in that it's almost yeah i could say it's, it's more satisfying seeing other people do well and it's come full circle because i'm now programming for some of the guys that are in my squad That's so awesome. we will eventually because i'm going for the next olympics we will compete against each other but me seeing them do well now because they're you know they're young bucks coming through you know with far more potential than i ever had and, you know, I feel that responsibility is that they can get the most out of themselves. And a big thing is not make the mistakes that I make. I think everybody who has competed at a high level gets to the end of their career. And there's a few things that they wish they would have known when they were younger. Yes. And I think as a coach, it's your responsibility to not let those athletes fall into those traps. Because I would say for the most part, most sportsmen and athletes don't re- I don't think they reach their genetic potential. I completely agree. And, and uh, you actually made a great segue within what you were saying into the concept of, you know, you've been physically preparing or this physical preparation for such a long time. Um, I want to dive into that a little bit with you because we have, you know, with, with you on here, we have a a very um, unique perspective of someone that competed at an exceptionally high level individually, but then also uh, is now coaching um, in that same respect. So, on the on the topic of physical preparation, you know, we we talked a little bit before the podcast started about how I think social media is great in so many ways that it connects a lot of minds, it connects a lot of athletes to those minds and athletes to other athletes. But I think what happens is 
there's still this kind of, um, you know, clickbaity, sensationalized aspect to social media that can really skew the perception of what it really takes to be an athlete that competes at a high level and make that progress um, over the appropriate amount of time. You know, with the with we're inundated with. Um, eight weeks to this, three months to this, and and really the the journey of an athlete is not measured in weeks, months. Um, it's measured in in years, and and really a commitment to um, that process. So, as you program now for, and as you are coaching these guys that are on the up and up, what what are some of the key components? of the training that you're providing to them that some of our younger athletes that are making these progressions can really learn from like, what are we, what are the general population missing? Like what's not being yeah. said enough? From my perspective, most of the guys that I program for are simply not fit enough. And that's something that is missed out almost entirely from the flashy posts that you see on Instagram. So we talked about general preparation period. Obviously that is in track and field that always happens. And in field sports, you might call it off season. And I think especially for people just perhaps wanting to dunk or jump high, they don't see the more holistic side of the program that you need to be a better athlete and a more powerful organism as a whole to, to, to really excel in in the really high velocity movements. And so what I find is I get a lot of athletes coming to me who have been cherry picking exercises, very high intensity exercises from social media for a long time. They're not high level athletes already. So they have no right to be exploring those exercises because they haven't got the fundamentals down. They're, they're banged up because they've been hitting too much high intensity without building volume up to that point. And they're simply not fit enough. So I've had a few guys recently that jump on my, um, if someone comes to me wanting to jump high, I always start them on general prep, pretty much. Unless their training history, they've literally just done a block of general prep style work. I'll start them on general prep and I'll hit them hard with, they'll have they'll be surprised at the aerobic component and um obviously you coming from canada i get a lot of my stuff from charlie francis as well you know yeah. I, I always looked into his his teachings back in the day and um i, I include tempo and i include one of the snc sessions is what i call snc conditioning and that's hard work that's hard Absolutely. work it's very there's a there's a large aerobic component and there is there's a you know a glycolytic component as well. You're gonna get you're gonna be burning. You're gonna be working hard. And I get a lot of people going. That, yeah, that session was was solid. That put me that put me through the mill. Like 15 reps here and there, 12 reps here and there, short recoveries, and that's only in there once a week. Like obviously we've still got the bread and butter strength and power movements, but that seems to be what really is a plateau bust. Some of these guys that have been just hitting high intensity movements for, for years. They work through range mm -hmm. and they work through fatigue. And yeah, they get fitter as an individual. So their, their baseline aerobic fitness goes up there without getting too jargony here. You know, yeah. their substrate stores go up and their capacity goes up, their work capacity goes up. It's also an investment. So, what I've been is 
people tend to get there's a ton of easily accessible improvements to be made through general means before you graduate to doing something more specific and, and flashy right you have no right to be hitting those really flashy specific exercises unless you've really got everything you can get out of general means and if you're if you're anything sub elite really in whatever you're doing general means tend to give you the best bang for your buck so most of the guys that come to me i'll start them off general preparation i'll get them fit they tend to get a ton of improvement in that general preparation period then what happens is i find less plateaus going through what i call the specific preparatory periods after yeah, less plateaus and then again less injuries then the real challenge comes if i'm working long term is when to throw another general prep back in because i don't want to take them too far away from what i've done there right and, um coming from track and field that's going to be you know very familiar to you that that was the kind of that's the, often the setup that people use um with field sport guys it's a little bit or court guys, uh, games guys, as I would call mm -hmm. basketball, American football, soccer. It's a little bit different. You've probably got a shorter period to work with them in the off season. But for me, it's even more important to get good volume and general load in at that point so that that carries them through the season on the pitch. Yeah. Then at that point, I get a lot of people that want a supplementary program, so something that works around what they're doing on the pitch. Again, that's an e a time that's even just as important to make sure you nail your general exercises because I think the the temptation is to try and mimic things that they're doing on, on the pitch. But really the demands of what they're doing on the pitch, keep those tools sharp. You gotta make sure they can turn up and keep competing at that level. So when I'm setting the programs for the court or games based guys, yeah, I make sure that it's how, it's how it's integrated into their their working week or their training week, as you call it. Right. So it definitely differs between, obviously, for what the goal is. But for me, time and time again, it's about people missing the basics, the bread and butter. And, you know, just getting some work done and getting fit. Yeah, we completely and agree. It doesn't That's... look cool to... And you know they want probably want to post it on Instagram. It doesn't look too cool when you're sweating away trying to um, push out your uh, last press up. But um, when they then post that video of them jumping six inches higher, then it all you know it all comes together. It all comes full circle, and we say that all the time. You know, we I mean, you know, our channel is one that you know every other comment or DM we get is really you know what what's the best it's always what's the best or what's the key or what's one thing i can do and and the unpopular answer as you've mentioned is really that it's this is such a process of putting in that general work over time uh with sprinkling in the the sport specific elements um when you've like you said you've earned the right to be able to dive into that type of stimulus because there's really better athletes make better jumpers and that's what we do with our training is um and again it might not be the flashiest but it's we're really training the whole athlete to be a better athlete with a bias toward vertical jump training or, or jumping in general and i think the term jump training is being tossed around a little bit too much in my opinion because jump training really should be just training it's progressive uh good rooted um uh training with 
emphasis on general physical preparation and, and sprinkling in those uh, sports specific elements when you've gotten to a point where you can sustain that on a physiological level. So uh, it's really nice to hear and see. And I think for, for athletes that are listening or watching to really understand that this is how training is done at the highest levels that the, you know, um, super cool exercise that you see on one person's channel and the super cool exercise you see on another person's channel, just by combining them together, doesn't give you a training program. It just gives you two very different varying degrees of stimulus that may or may not cause you to be injured or may or may not cause you to make progress. So we, we are big on, on maintaining the basics and we do work with a lot of, like you're saying, um, court athletes, we call them team, just team sport athletes in general, because I think the demands of team sport are different in the sense that people are trying to make these vertical jump gains, um, within the confines of their competitive season. And, and the games you play largely as a power sport or power speed athlete are, in themselves an incredible exposure to power and speed stimulus so just by dumping more of that on them doesn't if anything else it just bottoms them out in a lot of ways so we're really spending the mass majority of our time we're really you know the biggest bang for our buck is making sure that that gpp follows them all the way through their competitive season Mm -hmm. to support their body as they really um get that sport specific or, or specialized physical elements from their from their team sport itself so um yeah so developing ever, athlete um, yeah go ahead do you, do you ever find you have a problem with buying with for example basketball or volleyball athletes when you tell them that they don't need to jump more to jump higher in fact it could cause you to get injured mm-hmm. How is how do you find buy-in there? Because I have to convince a lot of athletes that are coming over from specifically volleyball and basketball who are jumping hundreds of times a week that they don't need to jump more. They need to create a stronger and more stable base for them to jump from. So their structure, soft tissue, uh, their neural drive all needs to be developed, but it needs to be developed elsewhere because they're already getting a massive exposure to that high-velocity movement. Uh, like you've just said that you that you you can't just dump more plyometrics and jumping on them it doesn't make any yeah. sense so i was just wondering from your perspective how you you get a buy-in from those athletes yeah you know that's a that's a constant struggle and i think if you are not necessarily a a um a business or a program or a coach that wears their, that sensationalized element on the surface, then you're going to have a difficult time with onboarding athletes in the, in the sea of what's available through social media. That being said, we've kind of taken an approach of almost like daring people to train the right way. So it's more, more along the lines of um, like, yeah, go ahead and you can, and you can, you know, cherry pick and find exercises that you'd like, or you can come and work with people that have done this themselves to a very high level and and run multiple athletes to the highest level through this course over and over and over again. And it becomes almost like a, I dare you, you probably won't 
be able to make it or you probably and it gets a little bit of that competitive fire going but from a from the perspective of buy-in it's I think it's an, always going to be an uphill battle uh, basketball is in my opinion probably the most challenging athlete uh, to work with overall largely because the mass majority of basketball players ascend to the level they are with almost no uh, exposure to the weight room uh, because it's really just you're, you're getting better at the skill of playing basketball right and there's a lot that can be done without yeah. necessarily having a big front squat or or being able to pull you know weight off the floor or be, be more stable because you've developed that specificity of stability within the confines of your sport but not realizing that there's more and I think that's really the at the end of the day what it comes down to for me is that the quote-unquote natural athlete understanding that they don't just have to be a natural athlete there are aspects mm. of kind of layering more resiliency onto you that can be really beneficial like for that's my story largely is that i i really didn't start training per se until almost universe like university like when i mm -hmm. my first year 19 20 years old i was a pretty gifted quote unquote natural athlete i could jump pretty high I could dunk a basketball in high school I was a you know almost seven meter long jumper in high school and a two, almost a two meter high jumper with with only just being naturally good at jumping when I hit that university level and I started putting that work in and understanding that you know what if you're willing to um, push yourself um, that little bit of extra that's really what separates the the good athlete from the the great athlete at the end of the day but it doesn't always look pretty and and this was pre-instagram and pre-youtube as mm -hmm. as i'm sure some of your career was as well um definitely, definitely and you're working out for yourself you're working out for yourself and i think if people are coming in with the with the mentality of um, i want to jump higher and i want to do it in six weeks and uh, that's really the the the, the poorest uh, mentality to approach anything with is um, I have a timeline for my success because we that's just not the case right we understand that it's a commitment um, to a lifestyle and a commitment mm. to a journey that reveals its its benefit um, progressively and over time definitely that, yeah it's and I see that time and time again in my sport because for a lot of a lot of the guys that find themselves in my sport, they haven't reached the upper echelons in whatever sport they've come from before. So quite often that's track and field. They find themselves proficient at another sport, which allows them X amount of years of, of more training. Whereas in the, the other sport, they would have probably stopped at that point and thought, right, it's time to move on. A very good example is one of my teammates who was, he's from the same area as me. So we used to sprint against each other and he was a, we, we were, we were good sprinters. He was better than me. He ran, I think 10, 10 and five at probably 21, 20, 21 years old. Fast, so it's, yeah. it's pretty good, but you, you wouldn't expect that guy to go to an Olympics, for example. Um, I know what the talent pool is like in, in Canada, as well as great Britain. You've there's some quick guys out there and running yes. that, pace at that age you're probably not going to have your sights set on the olympic games he was an awesome accelerator as well and found his way into bobsleigh at a similar time to me and probably four or five years later he ran 996 for the 100 meters yeah wow and nobody if it, he would have never been given a chance in track and field because he didn't reach um the required 
time over 100 meters at a young enough age. But then come 27 years old, he was actually the third quickest Britain ever and the quickest that year running wow. sub 10. So, yeah, it's, it's a process. You, you never know where the genetic ceiling is. Some people's genetic floor is like, I, I like to see it like a floor and a ceiling. Your ceiling might be here, but your floor might be here. Somebody else's floor might be right up here, but their ceiling is here. So they're going to show talent straight away or a younger age. And they get investment as well. And they're more likely to go to a high level within the sport. But you, you never know where your ceiling is. And it's been the same for me. I've, I've, reached stand, I've reached physical standards that I never thought were possible for me. But I've lived the incredible life of being able to be a full-time athlete and compete at the peak of my my life and my physical uh, my physicality which is something that a lot of people don't get the privilege to, to to hit because life comes to you fast right and you've got to concentrate on other things but if there's consistency throughout there's no no saying that you 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 can't hit those those limits that you thought weren't were, were beyond you yeah and i think it is about consistency it's just 100 percent about consistency yeah that's always going to be the battle back. yeah that's always going to be the battle i think is at the end of the day if you're if you're just dipping if you're dipping your toe in if you're just kind of interested in doing something like jumping higher running faster being being stronger there's there's no dipping your toe in and sampling the water and expecting a result like you have to get in you have to submerge yourself and if there's not that underlying passion that I think that really holds people um, accountable over time, then you're, to me, it's like, you're more just a fan of, of sports. You're more just a fan of training or you're a fan of the concept behind what it could be. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it really, really does come down to that consistency element. Now, Ben, you know, for, for these young athletes that are listening and even, even the more mature athletes that have been um, in this game a long time that maybe you're starting to give advice to younger athletes. Let's, let's talk about some like bang for your buck um, movements or, or where time should be spent when it comes down to like, we already touched on, obviously like GPP is incredibly important, but like what specifically aside from like our, you know, the aerobic, like put them in the weeds workout that you mentioned, are you having these athletes spend time on? And then I'll, I'll kind of, you know, bridge that with if we're doing similar things or anything different as well. Okay. So I think as far as strength development goes, I'm a big fan of the trap bar deadlift. And I think it's probably the best bang for your buck exercise that you can, you can do in the gym. And that's because of the variability of it as well. Cause you can get an athlete who has never lifted any weight before that can probably pull a unladen trap bar off the ground. You can also put that trap bar on blocks if their mobility isn't good enough to pull it um, with a straight back, for example. And then at the same time, you can identify those range of movement issues that they may have. So it's a good diagnosis tool for coaches as well. And that works, I think, through, literally from young athletes starting to strength train all the way to 
an athlete like me in their 30s pulling a trap bar deadlift for a high intensity or a trap bar jump for me at this point um it's as good a stimulus as, as you can you can get in the gym and um yeah that's it, it's, it's pretty simple you're going to get the most bang for your buck there i'm not yeah. saying it's the only thing you should do but i think it represents a easier and safer movement for most athletes to do and um i see time and time again more issues coming from other commonly used movements in the gym and I've had more issues myself with, I still, I still squat, I still deadlift, I still power clean, but I'm 33 years old and I've been learning those over more than 10 years now. And um, if I could go back, I would, I would use a trap bar deadlift and variants of it a lot more. Because even when you get to eccentric loading, you can, you can put in a tempo lower, um, you can put in a high velocity drop, you can do a Romanian deadlift lower with a trap bar lift up. So you're overloading the hamstrings. You can do trap bar jumps. You can dump the bars so you're not overloading. Like we spoke about before right. uh, an overloading axial load on the spine. So it's a safer movement. Obviously you can always let go. So I think strength wise, bang for your buck, trap bar deadlift. I think people that are training for vertical jump and maybe not, aren't necessarily Team sport athletes, um, so just dunkers, for example. Sure. I don't think they spend enough time running. So obviously you're looking for your high-end anaerobic work, your hill sprints and sprints in general. But then I'm also a huge fan of tempo runs, so lower intensity running. And there is the aerobic component there that people may think is counterintuitive and probably won't make you jump high. And there are some arguments to why that can help you. Uh, it's probably beyond the realm of this podcast today. But there are stiffness qualities that you can develop with lots of contacts, especially on a soft surface like, like grass. And um, for most of my guys that are, uh, I'm coaching just to jump higher, uh, it's probably only one session a week, but that covers a lot of bases. And I think it covers some of the abilities that you'll develop through more intensive plyometrics so i think people go too intense with their plyos um my my knees today in the morning are a testament to the fact that i went too intense on my plyos too young um i was too knee dominant in my plyos too young if i'd have done more in extensive plyometrics and tempo running with taller hips, more and um, more focus at the uh, at the hip joint rather than the knee, I believe I wouldn't be in uh, with the pain that I'm in nowadays. Um, so I think, especially for the young guys, those would be my three um, go-to bang for your buck. Away from, I think number one is jump technique. Away from jump technique, and I know that obviously um, you've been at the forefront of that, and especially with popularizing a terminology that everybody understands which i think is perfect mm -hmm. because especially two foot jump technique is very misunderstood because it hasn't been looked at in as much detail as track and field jumping which is always off one foot correct so num number one is technique but you need a good coach for that absolutely so from your own perspective if anybody that's listening um strength wise trap bar deadlift make sure you're running and make sure you're getting extensive players in. 
I love that. I love the fact that you brought up running. Uh, that's a question we get all the time. You know, someone will say in, in every live, um, you know, I run, I run a couple times a week. Should I stop this to be able to maximize my vertical? And for me, there's, there's kind of two, there's a couple ways I approach this. Number one is if you do something that makes you happy, if you like to do something, do it. Unless, like, unless you are in that kind of top 0.5% of individual that's competing at the very top of their sport, let's say you are a, um, you know, a, a dunker that has already a really good basis of, of, of stiffness and all these things that have been accumulated over time, then, then throwing in a couple like long distance runs a week might not be ideal for your situation. However, when you're a developing athlete, like you're saying, I'd love... That's what people I think don't realize is the stiffness and, and a lot of that elasticity is built up over a extensive duration of time with a multitude yeah. of, of lower intensity contacts. That extensive plyometric you know, concept really is just accumulating those small contacts build the progressive uh, stiffness in a lot of those tendon structures that people are like, well, how do I improve my stiffness and, and do it in like six weeks? You know, it's not going to be sitting there trying to do these loaded. Exactly. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> the, the amount of adaptation that's required for the body to be able to uh, build the tissue appropriately um, takes, takes a, a long, long period of time. So I love that the trap bar deadlift, I can completely agree with. I love the accessibility of a trap bar deadlift. The, um, the barrier to entry is very low and the amount of success an athlete can, can experience on that at a very quick or, early, or young age is high. And I think that's big for a coach is to be able to give an athlete that uh, feeling of empowerment and success very quickly in the process, right? Nothing worse than bringing a new athlete on and being like, okay, we're going to learn a front squat. Um, you don't have requisite stability or mobility to do it. We're going to jam you through that because we know front got to do front squats, got to do front squats, but it's, it takes too long to be able to get that success moment. I also like how um, safe it is on the, the, the shoulder girdle, the upper back. It helps athletes find and source that external torque through their shoulders. Whereas like a straight bar really requires a lot more setup than people realize, you know, you know, yeah, from a, yeah, yeah. from power cleaning and, and moving a bar at high velocity that there's a certain amount of torque into the bar um, that needs to be established that a lot of people don't understand number one or two know how to accomplish so that trap bar just eliminates a lot of that it puts them in a very neutral position and it makes uh, movement through those ranges of motion a lot more accessible um, and then you'd mentioned the extensive plyos which we completely agree as well so i think the the general message is uh, bang for your buck is put in the time to build the the base build the foundation because the changes and adaptations you'll get in those early stages of general physical preparation of moving weight will far outweigh the benefits you'll get from trying to jump into a more specific um, tailored plyometric based program where realistically your body's going to bleed the majority of that energy and try to uh, find that release valve so that it doesn't injure itself. And you're talking yeah, about yeah, your, your yeah. knees, right? right. And, and for mm -hmm. me, it's, it's my, it's my spine and my lower back um, where I think we were largely the opposite in many ways. You were very knee dominant naturally spent a lot of time working through the, probably the, the more gross range of motion and, and deeper yeah, yeah, things yeah. like depth jumps and very, mm -hmm. very, very power heavy movements where I was a very reactive athlete naturally. So I spent a lot of time very hip and, and ankle uh, dominant with a lot of the contacts I did. So 
the, the, the global stiffness that I attained, it was high, but also global stiffness also leaves less room for dissipating energy um, at the high end from things like landing. So it just sourced, yeah. it found my spine and, and now they just are, I guess the discs are just shaped different. I guess that's just, that's just the reality of the situation now. So I yeah. think if we had blended our approaches, who knows? Who I mean, knows? Uh, yeah. <laughs> there's always, I think there's, there's a price to pay for jumping's in, incredibly stressful, especially when you, you, you jump well. Yes. Um, Cause there's just more forces going through the body. So yeah, the, the extensive approach means you can, you can get a lot more uh, contacts and conditioning in without that um, payoff and payback, I should say, essentially. Yeah. And um, I think that's why I quite like, um, I like depth landings as well, but not as extreme as probably what you've seen in some of my Instagram posts. Right. Um, a little lower and you can just, from my experience, you can get more, you can get a higher amount of contacts without actually getting the stretch shortening cycle to turn around completely. So if you jump out, don't jump out of the depth landing with full intent, then you're going to save yourself um, a bit of stress down the line. Right. So I tend to often set my jump sessions up with a few um depth landings and i'll go through you like a box jump into a depth landing and so you're kind of taking care of both sides before we put them together and what it ultimately means is i'll do slightly less volume of all out jumps because i feel confident i've worked in the volume at each each, each end of the spectrum before right. that. um it's something that i didn't do as a younger athlete and i wish i had done because i probably wouldn't um be wincing when I walk down the stairs now, but um, yeah. you know we all we all live and learn, and it's uh, I'm sure that's your journey as well. You don't want your athletes now to have the injury struggles that you have in in your um, in your phase. Absolutely, which is the same as as, as how I feel is that I really don't want them making those same mistakes because um, I think it's been a limiting factor as well. Pain is always a limiting factor and it's been a limiting factor for me over the last few years um, right. just from a performance standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. Now I, I you know, you and I could podcast about a, a, a multiple topics and probably <laughs> talk for hours and hours and hours, but um, I want to obviously wanted to keep this uh, more about you, your story, and then also talking about the general concepts that people can really pull from. I want to ask you one more question uh, before we kind of wrap things up on this initial podcast. You're going to be back on before we know it. Um, absolutely. I had a blast uh, chatting with you. Okay. For our audience, Ben, um, let's project that well in a lot of places they are gyms are closed okay mm -hmm. they're shut down the pandemic has come through and created this global apocalypse that we're living through right now but yeah. what um what one piece of equipment would you make sure you had um at your home to optimize your training time uh within the the home um, environment sans mm -hmm. gym what are you mm. making sure that you have? Could be any piece of equipment. Um, okay. What What's going to be uh, your go-to? You can think about that. I'm not going to make you like mm. jump on the spot, but like think about it because like I've done this as well. You know, I'm fortunate enough, obviously, to have a pretty full gym at my yeah, house. Yeah. But it, but in the circumstance of being a you know an average athlete, I get a lot of questions like, well, what should I order? Should I order this or what can I? And and it's always nice to be able to give people a, a diverse answer. So let's hear it. So, yeah, that's a very pertinent question right now because I've been getting most of my athletes, I've had to switch up their training because of a lack of equipment since gym shut. And 
all of those athletes have a different amount of home equipment. So I've got athletes that have nothing. And that doesn't matter because you can do a hell of a lot with your, with your body weight. And if you've got something you can grab hold of, just doing chin-up variations is um, incredibly uh, good for, just for strength gains. But I think, especially working with the guys and with limited amount of, uh, a limited amount of equipment, I think the most useful piece of equipment I've seen during the shutdown has literally been a lifting resistance band. So just a lifting band in, in general. And I think that's because of the amount of different movements that you can do with it. And you could argue that maybe it doesn't have the same intensity as some other, like if somebody had, uh, I could say, oh yeah, a, a barbell and um, 150 kilos of, of weights. And that's all well and good, but where, where the hell are you going to lift them? Um, I tried to do a set of power cleans in my back garden and the neighbors were running out thinking that <laughs> someone's digging the road up. So, you know, practically that's not going to work if you're, if you're at home. Yeah. And so from the guys that I've worked with, a, a resistance band has, has come in really, really handy. Along with that, actually, I've used, um, I've literally just used a towel for yield, uh, overcoming isometrics. So people just grab the towel, get their feet on it, pull up, oh. and yeah, just get that isometric stimulus in before going through a larger range of movement. And the other thing I did was I just increased the range of movement with most exercises. So uh, set so the bench press, people were doing deficit push-ups instead right. of squats. People were doing pistol squats off a off a chair. So just challenge the challenging things either unilaterally or through more range of motion. But yeah, bang for my buck. Piece of equipment in lockdown would be a resistance band. Um, the weight of that depends on your strength. But you can do good mornings. You can do squats. You can do jump squats. You can do resisted press ups. You're getting an over um accommodating resistance through that movement you can get one hell of a burn on the same time you can get your accessories done because there's stuff that's going to be neglected in lockdown because you don't have your fancy cable machine to do your rotator cuff work and all this sort of stuff but for me any of my clients that had a lifting band they've been good over lockdown and they've trained really hard and now the gyms are opening in the uk i think next week um they're hopefully going to go back in there without too much trouble getting back underneath the bar again absolutely well i complete i'll second that motion i mean we put out a program kind of at the beginning of of quarantine um that was body weight and resistance band and we've been uh, getting lots of great feedback about it so mm -hmm. it's resistance band absolutely you can even bunch up a resistance band to the point where it almost doesn't stretch and you can get almost an element of, of yielding of, of those isos behind a, a yielded yeah, yeah. fixed object sure. if you get enough tension built in you know you're going to get similar stimulus to some of those um some of those isometrics um, that you spoke on. So absolutely, Amazon is full of them. Don't be like, I, I can't find them or I, I can't. They are affordable. They are accessible. The entire world is being shipped to your front door right now um, and invest a little bit in yourself. It pays back dividends. Uh, ben, I appreciate you taking your time today to be here with us and, and really drop some great wisdom from the perspective of being an elite athlete and an absolutely stud coach. Um, where can people find you on social media? Uh, where, where should we send them? So my personal page is at Ben the Bounce. That's just one word. And then my, my business page is at Semtex underscore systems. So a lot of my content goes out on my personal page and 
on the Semtech Systems page, a lot of my clients' content goes out. So that's more the platform of the people I'm, I'm working with. But yeah, mostly Instagram. I'm on Twitter at Ben the Bounce as well. And yeah, but Instagram is my main main area. So yeah, anybody that wants to ask me any questions, come over there, drop me a DM. I, I like to reply. Um, I like to meet new people. So that's how me and uh, Tyler got talking <laughs> in the first place. So absolutely. Yeah. And thanks for uh, taking your time out and uh, giving me this platform to speak on. Anytime I'm coming. Absolutely. It's, it's always open to you, Ben. Uh, so everybody knows out there, Ben is a, an individual that we support a hundred percent. Um, it's in it's very important for us to surround ourselves with, um, people that are like-minded in many ways, but also really just there to do one thing. And that is to help elevate the industry, um, to a point where people are really getting what they need and kind of silencing the, the garbage and jargon that gets circulated around the internet. So uh, Ben, we appreciate you obviously doing that from your end. That's all the time we have today for the, this episode of the penultimate podcast, go check Ben out and uh, we'll catch all you guys in the next one. The penultimate podcast is powered by project pure athlete. Visit ProjectPureAthlete.com and check out the complete line of PPA training and technique products. All products are created by the jump guy and have been used and endorsed by coaches and athletes worldwide. Jump higher. Train smarter. Holla, bitch, sit down. Holla, bitch, sit down.